holiday time, so we've got an activity for the kids during the sermon. Uh, and because whenever I do this particular activity, all the adults want to uh, be involved as well. I've got enough, probably not, well, maybe for everybody, I'm not sure. Um, but Carla, do you want to just, kids, um, here there's some, these bits of paper and uh, pens, and I'll explain what it is, okay? This is a little thing called Sermon Bingo. So one of the things it does is it keeps me to my script so I don't go off and spend lots of time uh, doing things. Um, and what it is, is when you, hear, when you hear a particular word that's on that list, you cross it off. And uh, when you've finished, when you've managed to cross them all off, so you've got to listen really carefully because I talk really fast, I'll try not to mumble, okay? When you've got them all done, you yell out, BINGO! Okay? And the first person to yell out bingo, the first child and adult, and some of you can choose which category you want to be in, because you're sort of in that in-between sort of stage, that's cool, um, gets to uh, get a prize. Uh, sorry? Veterans? Oh, you, you think that, uh, oh, come on, Neil. <laughs> Okay, those, in the, well, yeah, and, and um, yeah, okay. So just so that you know I'm not, I'm not joking and that I'm happy if, if people yell out bingo, I'm going to say the word rhinoceros, and when I say the word rhinoceros, everybody's going to yell out bingo, okay? So you just got to wait till I get to rhinoceros. Bingo! I didn't hear any of the kids. <laughs> rhinoceros. Ah, oh, that's it, okay. You're allowed to do that, all right? You are allowed to do that. In fact, uh, if you don't do it, I've probably missed it part of my sermon and we'll have to start all over again. <laughs> Let's pray. Loving God, in the midst of just this joyful time, we pray that you would speak to us uh, through your servant Nehemiah, uh, by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, um, we've been here three and a half years. In fact, um, I came, tried to sneak into church last uh, Sunday just to be part of the, the worship here. And on the way, I had this deja vu moment because four years ago, on the first Sunday of the year, we tried to sneak in, Chris and I, just to spy out the land. Um, and Joy Jansen, I think, was taking the morning service. It's the first time she'd ever done it. And uh, she'd been part of the committee that had looked at us and was a bit freaked out that I, there I was sitting down where Elaine is sitting there, and David reminded me of that but last week. But we've actually been up here for three and a half years. Sometimes it seems like a lifetime, or as uh, somebody said during the week, more a life sentence. And uh, uh, it wasn't me. <laughs> and others times it just seems like the blink of an eye. And in that time, we've come together as Hope Fongarei. Okay. Uh, make that one easy so you get the idea of it. And from our, you know, we've come together from our three different sites. And in a very Trinitarian way, the three have become one. We are distinct. And over the last three weeks, we've celebrated some of that distinction with the music styles that's been part of the worship. And that's been great. But we belong together. We are one. And uh, over that period, we've said farewell to some dear people. 
We've grieved together and we've welcomed new ones as well. We've had six uh, adult baptisms in that time and we've had many people welcomed as members and new people come and be part of our fellowship. And we've forged ourselves together and we've been through the storm that was and is COVID. You can boo if you want to. <laughs> well, I sense that 2023 is a year where we need to refocus and face the challenge of change. Um, we need to reconnect and refocus on our God-given vision for Hope Whangarei. See, we believe that we're called to be a flourishing Christian community. And we make that a reality through our mission of connecting people to God and one another. And we need to allow the Holy Spirit to renew and reform us for that vision and mission. Now, often in organisations, they confuse restructuring for real change and reform. You know, often it's just the process of centralising and decentralising. And we're seeing that process at the moment with the government, you know, uh, DHBs and stuff being centralised after they decentralised everything. And, you know, it actually takes a lot of effort to do that restructuring. An accountant friend of mine once said, you know, it's just what organisations do. And they think that they've changed. They think that they've been renewed. But the question for us is how do we reform ourselves and refocus ourselves on our vision and mission? How do we become Hope Whangarei, this flourishing Christian community where people are continually connected to God and one another in our city and beyond? And that's a good question. And that's why we're turning to look at scripture, and in particular at the story and the character of Nehemiah. Because, see, Nehemiah, according to Andy Stanley, is the story of how God uses a person to lead his people from a difficult and desperate reality into what Andy Stanley calls God's preferred future, God's vision for his people. And Nehemiah can help us as we work through that same process, individually in our lives as we choose to follow Jesus, and corporately as a church. And Nehemiah, according to Christian psychologist and student ministry leader, Dr. John White, is a great example of a leader, a godly leader. And you know, I often find myself saying to God, hey mate, you've got it wrong. I'm not the person to lead this church into what you have for us. You know, I haven't got what it takes. I'm inadequate. So I need Nehemiah's help and counsel. You know, and there's a lot there for all of us because at the heart of Nehemiah as a leader is a person of faith who puts that faith into action, which speaks to all of us. So let's turn and look at Nehemiah, and in particular Nehemiah chapter 1. And once we've looked at the text, I want to connect it back to us here and now. And uh, it's going to appear on the screen in the NIV, which is what I use when I do my Bible study. And Nehemiah is part of a pair of books in the Old Testament which deal with the restoration of Jerusalem after the exile in Babylon. Ezra is the other part of that pair. 
And Babylon had destroyed the city and taken the people into exile. And by taking them to, into exile, that was their way that they destroyed the, the sort of national aspirations and uh, the um, sort of identity of people. They would take them away from their native land and they would spread them throughout the empire. But God promised to restore his people. And after 70 years, Babylon has been conquered by the Medes, who actually changed that policy of exile. And there's a return to Jerusalem. And it's a process that takes many years. And the books of Haggai and Ezra and others cover those first journeys back, the resettlement and the rebuilding of the temple. And then the Medes are then conquered by the Persians. And you have Artaxerxes, who's told that Judah, by rebuilding the temple and starting to rebuild the walls, is planning... Oh, sorry, re, uh, Artaxerxes is told that Judea, with the temple and city walls being, being rebuilt, um, was planning a revolt. So he commands them to stop rebuilding. And all rebuilding stops. And, you know, walls often offered protection to a city. They offered security that was needed for a place and a people to flourish and prosper. Without them, there was uncertainty. There was just insecurity. There was no growth in commerce or population. Uh, there was no life that could really happen in a city. There was no prosperity. And that's where the book of Nehemiah comes in. It's a book which is primarily a journal written by Nehemiah, who is able to get Artaxerxes to change his order and goes and directs the rebuilding of the walls and furthers the restoration of Jerusalem and God's people. And Nehemiah introduces himself in verse 1 as being the son of Hakaliah. He is a Jew. And his family connection is how he identifies himself with his people. And you know, we're used to that because in New Zealand, a person's papa is important. And he lets us know that the time of his writing, it was the month of Kilev, in the ninth month in the Jewish calendar, in the 20th year, which is the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. And he's in Susa. Susa is the winter palace of the Persian king. He's right at the center of the Persian empire. It's a fortress in what is modern-day Iran. And Susa is a site for other parts of scripture as well. Daniel's vision in chapter 8 of his book, he finds himself, sees himself standing in Susa and sees the rise and fall of empires. And of course, he's also traditionally seen as being buried there. The book of Esther is set in that city. And you know, those things say that at the heart of the Persian Empire, with their gods and their own religion, all their power and might, Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is at work and showing his sovereignty over history and his ability to save and care for his people. Nehemiah's heart is not in Susa. It's with his people and with Jerusalem. Hanani and a group come from Jerusalem and he questions them about how the people and the city are faring. 
And when he hears that the city is without walls and the people are not thriving but are in a desperate situation, his heart is broken. And he weeps and he grieves and he turns to prayer. And we have his prayer recorded in this reading that we had read out to us today. And it may seem like it's uh, just a short, concise, liturgical prayer. It's well put together. You could use it in a service. But when you realise that there's a gap of five months between Nehemiah chapter 1 and Nehemiah chapter 2, you see that it's a summary of a long commitment to prayer. You know, God uses this news about the people in Jerusalem to draw Nehemiah into intense, prolonged and consistent prayer. Prayer for his people and for the city of Jerusalem. And that prayer starts with worship. Nehemiah's prayer is based on what he knows of God. God is sovereign, high and exalted. Now, in ancient Near Eastern thought, if my people came along and conquered your people, then my God was stronger and greater and more real than your God. Na, 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 na. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, um, but here, Nehemiah acknowledges God as the God of heaven, the Lord of heaven. Not just a national deity. Not just a territorial God, but the one true God above all gods, above all earth and all heaven. And he's aware of God's character, his covenant love and faithfulness. And he looks back to God's other great salvation of Israel, setting them free from Egypt and making a covenant with them through Moses. He says, let your eyes be attentive. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes see. And that reflects Moses meeting with Yahweh at the burning bush. The burning bush, by the way, is the logo of the Presbyterian church. Where God says, I have heard the cry of my people. I have seen their suffering. And I am drawing near to answer. And I'm sending you. And then he turns and he confesses the sins of his people. And his own and his family's part in not keeping God's word and commandments. Now, at this time in history, books like First and Second Kings were being written. They weren't news stories about the history of Israel and Judah, but the Jews see them as prophecy, showing how God was right and just to send his people into exile as generation after generation had been unfaithful to their covenant relationship. And you know, even the good kings did bad things. And then Nehemiah's prayer turns to remember God's word and God's promises. Firstly, that if the people continued to live unfaithfully and worship other gods, that yes, God would remove them from the land, but also the hope in scripture such as Jeremiah and Isaiah and the Torah itself, that God would also restore his people and the place where his name was worshipped. Nehemiah's vision is shaped by a vision of God's preferred future for his people that comes from his understanding and searching the scriptures, from God's revealed will to us. And we see that he then affirms that God has the strength to redeem and bring his people back again. He's done it in the past, he can do it now. 
And we see, then see that in this intense time of prayer and scripture study, he's also beginning to focus on a plan to be involved in helping with the situation. And the prayer finishes with him asking for help and success in the presence of this man. The Good News Bible lets you in on the secret of who this man is. It's almost like this chapter has been leading up to this moment. And we're left asking, which man? And then Nehemiah lets us in on the secret. I was the cupbearer for the king. This would have been a privileged, trusted, but also a perilous position in the household of Artaxerxes. You see, the cupbearer tasted all the wine and food before the emperor ate or drank. It's responsible for the emperor's security. And you could imagine it that if you were doing that, that you want to also be responsible for the growing and the production of the wine, make sure it was the best of wine, and you'd want to oversee the kitchens, and a word that's become very uh, significant in the last couple of years, the food supply chain. And you'd also be the one who mediates access to the king. And, you know, he is in this position, and you can see that it's God's providence that he's in this position. He's there for just this moment. But the chapter also shows us that Nehemiah's understanding of who he was, his identity, uh, even though he is part of this exiled people and defeated and an oppressed minority, you know, uh, he, even though he had so much invested in the present reality, you know, he was part, even though he was part of that oppressed people, he had this amazing position of power and prestige, of comfort. You know, he could sit back and enjoy it. He could. He could make a mint, you know. But first and foremost, he identifies with God's people. The phrase, your servant, your servants, particularly in the NIV, is repeated again and again in his prayers. He may serve the king, he may serve Artaxerxes, but first and foremost, it's God who he serves, individually and as part of God's people. And you know, that is what shapes his vision, and it shapes what he's prepared to do. Okay, well, how does all this apply to us here and now? Firstly, Nehemiah shows us that God is able to use who we are and where we are, where we have found ourselves, our history in terms of work, expertise and life experience for his purposes and plans. You know, Nehemiah's not a minister or a priest. He's an administrator and a servant. He has access to the king. And God uses that, and that's what's needed at this time. His main identity, again, is that he's a servant of God. And that makes the difference. And you know, the providence of God has made you who you are. And can use that for his purposes and vision. To, in Christ, build God's preferred future for his people and his world. If you're a doctor, a lawyer, a labourer, if you're retired with years and years of experience, you know, God can use those things. Yeah. The second thing 
is for that journey of change and vision to take place in our lives and our church and our community. We need to have dis-ease and disquiet with the way things are. You see, nothing will happen. Nothing will change. There will be no vision if you just settle for the status quo. And let's face it, we've got so much invested in the way things are. I mean, why change? That disquiet comes for Nehemiah as his mind and his heart focus on Jerusalem and his people. It actually starts to ferment itself as he asks Hanani about the condition of the people back in Jerusalem, the survivors of the exile. Jim Wallace, the founder of Sojourners Community in Washington, D.C., says that vision and mission and change start with trusting our questions. Trusting our questions. You know, and Christianity has often been a religion which says, we've got the answer. Jesus is the answer. And, you know, I passionately and firmly believe that. But somehow that has allowed us to become settled and comfortable. But following Jesus is willing to go on a quest. Question is the quest I'm on for what Jesus wants in this world. And that comes from asking some really uncomfortable questions. And, you know, Jesus was really good at asking uncomfortable questions. I read U2 frontman Bono's autobiography, Surrender, over the holidays and was reminded of the line from their song, Tick Tock. We thought we had the answers. It was the questions we had wrong. That's really challenging. We need to trust Jesus to ask us the right, uncomfortable questions. Jim Wallace goes on to say the other two things to move us out of our comfort is that we need to get out of home more and speak to people who are already involved in the issues that start to ferment themselves as we ask questions. Now, Nehemiah couldn't leave Susa, but you see him talking with those who are there and are involved. In fact, some scholars say that Nehemiah may have sent his brothers on a fact-finding mission. We don't know. You know, and as a church, we've contracted Adrian Whale to do a lot of that, going and asking questions for us, of listening to the community, of getting out and speaking with those who are involved with the marginal, marginalised and the needy in our city as we seek for the best missional use for our business block sitting there, you know, because it's earthquake-prone and we've got to do something about it. What is the best way that we can use it to serve the city? And he's going to come back with the start of a business plan and a vision for something new, which will incorporate some of the things we're already doing and that are already being done there. But, you know, it's that challenging question. It's also important to see that it's grief and concern for the conditions of the people that comes first on Nehemiah's heart, not just the buildings. They are suffering. They are desperate without hope. You know, vision and change and action comes very much from seeing the pain and the suffering of others. It comes from compassion. My friend Steve Fairley is a retired policeman. When he retired, he started hearing um, uh, news articles and was perplexed and saddened about stories that he heard about child poverty in New Zealand. 
And so he went to a local decile one school. That's the right way, isn't it? That's the lower decile teachers. Yep, you're not allowed to mention those sort of things anymore. Um, and he, he said to the principal, what can I do to help? That's quite a check. That's a question you've got to trust, isn't it? And the principal said, well, it'd be great if uh, we could have breakfast for the kids who come to school without it. So Steve started a breakfast club. Anybody could come. And because of his personality, he started looking for sponsorship, and he got it. Um, he found more schools who needed his help, and now he has breakfast clubs in, in, a, in a multitude of schools around Auckland. The kids in his first school didn't go to sports events because they didn't have uniforms. It was manas to go in your tatty old clothes. So Steve went and talked to a uh, sports goods provider. And now the kids turned up in the best of uniforms and they started winning all the competitions. And so Steve was able to get some of them to uh, uh, get scholarships to places like St. Kentigan's. And then, um, you know, uh, uh, I could go on. They feed over 600 families each Christmas. They provide bedding and appliances for families who don't have them. And you know what? God just seems to provide them on time. At one school, the pool stood empty and unused because the kids didn't have togs. So he put out a plea on social media and they had new togs coming from all over the world for these kids, thousands of them. And you know these kids wear the coolest sneakers? Not because they can afford them, but because of the families in our Presbyterian schools give away last year's models when they no longer fit their kids and they've had to buy new ones. Finally, this disquiet and change started and fermented and grew in prayer. Mission starts in prayer. Change and renewal start in prayer. Vision comes clear and becomes, starts to become a reality in prayer. You know, world vision started with a simple prayer by its founder, Robert Pierce. A challenging, dangerous prayer that I believe God will always answer. So be careful. Break my heart, Lord, with what breaks yours. You know, that journey for us as a church to fulfill our vision and mission is a call first and foremost to our knees. A willingness to pray and plead for our hurting and broken city and world. Our church and its decline and its need for renewal. Mission starts in prayer as we approach the heart of God and we hear God's preferred future. Let me finish with two sailing stories. And I'm not a sailor, so my, the facts might be wrong. You may have wondered what the picture behind me had to do with what we've been talking about. Well, it's a photo that I took on one of my walks during the holidays. It's not the best one I've taken, by the way. But it's an image that, when I saw it, I believe it was a visual parable. Uh, in case you, it's not that good a photo, it's a yacht. Yeah. <laughs> A uh, schooner, I think, with its two, two masts, is that right? Okay, nobody else knows, oh, that's good, but it's a schooner. That's important, isn't it, guys? Mm. Uh, with its sails up. But it's not going anywhere because it's tied to the jetty. Now, I know there's a reason for that. Um, they were probably drying their, their, their sails, or they were fitting new sails, or they were doing something. But it's stationary. 
You could think it's doing what it's designed to do because the sails are up. But it's tied to the jetty. It's attached to the land, to the way things are, to the familiar. And church can feel like that. We can be invested in the way that things are. This present reality. We can have our sails up but not allow the wind of the Spirit to lead us where God is wanting us to go because we're still tied up. We still have so much invested in the way things are. The second story is a really old one. This is Tim Severin's uh, coracle, The St. Brendan. It's possibly one of the oldest, comes from one of the oldest stories in European literature. It's the Navigato of St. Brendan. All right. <laughs> Carla, did you see who put their hand up first for the bingo? I think, yeah, Colleen gets the adult one. Uh, all right, Rue, was it Rue? Yeah. yeah, okay, Rue. Uh, can, can you, um, Simon, can you bring me that bag? Great. Rue, come up here, mate. Well done. Let me fish around in here. There you go, mate. Oh, and do you want to take that one down to Colleen? Don't nibble on it. Now, kids, don't worry, because on the way out, if you say to me, Howard, I did the bingo, there's more in here, okay? Adults, if you tell me you did the bingo, there's more in there as well. <laughs> I don't know if it'll go to everybody. We might have to pray over it. Back to the Navigato of St. Brendan. That's the story of an Irish monk who just may have sailed to the New World 1,000 years before Columbus in a bullock-hide-covered coracle. Anyway, at least it was a teaching story for the monasteries in Europe about living the Christian life. It was an extended parable. Brendan, who's an abbot in Ireland, hears about the possibility, this vision of a new land, the kingdom of God, paradise on earth. And he's prepared to leave his native Ireland. All the things that he knows, all the things that he loves, and venture out onto the uncertainty of the wild North Atlantic Ocean with a group of his monks in search of that. It's what the Celtic monks called green martyrdom, sacrificing the comforts of home for what God has in store, for the mission of God. And I'll leave you this morning with his prayer as he left his home and set out for the kingdom of God, for God's preferred future. As one line of the extended prayer says, as he left only the knee prints of his final prayer on his native land. Let's pray. And the words are up there. Help me to journey beyond the familiar and into the unknown. Give me the faith to leave old ways and break fresh ground with you. Christ of the mysteries, I trust you to be stronger than each storm within me. And I will trust in the darkness and know that my times, even now, are in your hand. And I love this next line. Tune my spirit to the music of heaven 
and somehow make my obedience count for you. Amen. I'll just give you a, just a silent moment because God might be just doing something in your life or you might just need to make this prayer yours. So let's just be still for a moment. Tune our hearts, tune our spirits to the music of heaven. Untie us and allow us to be moved by the wind of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Carla. I do realise that was a bit longer than normal, but... Uh, hey.